0: You are, you are now tuned in, in to the, in the December 26er, December 26er Podcast, podcast where, we where we encourage you, you to, be to be extraordinary on an ordinary, on an ordinary day. day. Hey 26er family, welcome to another episode of the December 26er Podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features attorney at law Denver Edwards. Denver came to the US from Jamaica when he was just seven years old and spent the rest of his childhood in New Jersey. An all-state football player, he graduated at the top of his class and very consciously chose to attend Middlebury College in Vermont, a very different environment from his East Orange High School. Denver eventually made his way to law school, and while he originally had his sights set on being a civil rights attorney, he decided to go the commercial route, which most people associate with a seamless path to wealth and success. But Denver's journey has had its obstacles and detours along the way, including a failed bar exam while the economy was entering a recession, the same recession that led to his unemployment. After a subsequent season of depression caused Denver to gain a significant amount of weight, he discovered P90X and put his energy into getting in shape. This singular focus then motivated him to seek other opportunities, and he eventually turned his life and career around. Today, he is a partner at a law firm and admitted to four different bars, yet he remains grounded and surprisingly lives in the same Newark, New Jersey home he grew up in. Denver has a story to tell and offers some unique perspectives. So take a listen and enjoy. Denver, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you?
1: I'm excellent. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for being here. You came in all snazzy, you know, (laughs) dressed to the knives. Ready for business.
1: Well, it is also Saturday, so you never know what you might get into. <laughs> this
0: is true, this is true. So we've been trying to do this for a while. Yes. And Demarcus was like, from the first, I think conversation he had with you, something totally unrelated mm-hmm. to the show was like, Denver would be a great guest on the podcast. And now all these months later, <laughs> I don't even know how long it's been, we're finally making it happen. It's so been a minute. it's yeah. good to have you. Thank you. So let's get into it. Who is Denver Edwards?
1: That's a tough question for me, because Mm -hmm. obviously, when you describe yourself, it's hard. Mm -hmm. Um, So I try to break things into categories. Um, I think that professionally, I'm a strategic thinker. Um, go to the mat for the people that I work with and for. Mm -hmm. Uh, Personally, I think I'm, you know, a great friend, committed, loyal, um, who says what has to be said, how it needs to be said. Um, And then third, I like to think of myself in a separate category as a father and parent. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm pretty good at that. But um, my children have had uh, presentations where they call me the mean daddy. (laughs) So sometimes I go a little bit far, but I think those are the three Categories that I okay. put myself in.
0: So let's start with the daddy
1: piece. Sure.
0: And I usually don't jump that far ahead, but I'm gonna I'm gonna That's do it. That's my favorite and, piece. And I could tell. I saw like the twinkle yeah. in your eye. How old are your kids?
1: So I have three sons. Uh, Alistair is. 19. He's mm-hmm. a, a sophomore to Amherst College. Um, then there is Duncan, who has just turned 17. He is a senior in high school at Georgetown Day School in Washington, D.C. And William is 14, who, who's a freshman at Georgetown Day School, Washington, okay. D.C.
0: So three sons, yes. none of them here, in, of them in, here. In, in New York. Correct. How have you managed to be a present father, despite <laughs> them being in someplace different than you?
1: So lead into that is that mom and I are divorced. Mm-hmm. So, um, um, uh, you know, that makes it a bit challenging, uh, not the divorce, but the separation. A couple of things. One, you just got to try. Mm-hmm. It, it can't be because you don't put in the effort. Um, so, the relationship with the kids you know it's really dictated by them so for example Alistair is off at college he and I uh, when he was younger we were you know peas in a pod mm-hmm. we would get along we would do everything together he's the firstborn uh he's beautiful he's tall he's strong he's smart you know all the things that yeah. I that I wanted in a son um but he's very much like me in a way so he's a bit reserved mm-hmm. and so he he doesn't really talk to me very. he doesn't reach out to me very mm-hmm. much when he calls It's about money. But it's also about some serious things, like uh, big decisions, like what 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 moves to make from a profe- potentially professional standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, he calls me about girls and relationship issues. He
0: does. He calls yeah. you oh, about yeah. that mm-hmm.
1: um, definitely. And then he calls me about how to deal with his mom. Mm-hmm. Like so, if there's any tension going on, you, you know, he wants my input as to how to deal with stuff. So I I I feel like my relationship with Alistair is almost more like not buddies, Mm -hmm. sometimes like colleagues, Okay. sometimes like a peer, Um, but what I miss about Alistair is I don't feel like it's father and son Mm -hmm. the way I want it to be father and son. I want it to be much more, you know, huggy, more emotional, and we're very uh, much alike, so it's very much like two dudes, you know, chopping it up in a serious way. My relationship with the other two boys is much more interesting. Duncan, my middle son, calls me almost every day, mm-hmm. shares everything, tells me like every, from I wake up in the morning until I go to bed and what exams I took, what girl I took, talked mm-hmm. to, what my plans are. So we have a very... um uh, close relationship. William is my youngest, but that is my dude. Mm-hmm. No disrespect to the other two. <laughs> if, if dad guys still loves you. This, I love you guys, but William is my dude. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's the youngest. Um, He was an unexpected child. Um, He had some challenges early uh, with a speech issue. Mm -hmm. But to me, he's just the dude because he just has this grit, right? He is, I mean, all my sons are really smart um, and he's really smart as well, but he just has this sense of, I will never be defeated Mm -hmm. and I will never submit. There's something about that attitude that even though his brothers are bigger than him, stronger than him, maybe have a little bit more intellectual horsepower now Yeah him that dude is going to be a maniac Mm -hmm. he's the one you really, you really love William.
0: I'm not saying you don't love your other sons, <laughs> but I can tell that well, he's definitely. So, so yeah. the
1: reason why William resonates with me is mm-hmm. William was me, okay. right? So when I was younger, I stuttered a lot mm-hmm. and people made fun of me because of that. I was small. I was When I entered high school, I was 135 pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, I was skinny, you know, I was always bright, but I just, there was nothing remarkable about me. My brother used to make fun of me and call me names because he thought, I was unattractive mm-hmm. um and i see a lot of that playing out with william except now william has gone from like this little shrimp of a kid to he's like five seven now he's mm-hmm. probably 140 pounds he's jacked up you know and, and i just see him overcoming so many challenges um that when he hits his stride it, it's going to be it's just going to be fantastic to mm-hmm. watch he is um he's also a kid that that will not be moved. Mm -hmm. So he's committed to um, his position. He thinks things through and he's committed to it. Um, I think my other sons can be moved a little bit Mm -hmm. because depending on what they think the audience wants to hear, they might give them some of that. William is firm in his position. He has a core and I respect that about him. He's not always right, but I respect that he has a core. Mm
0: -hmm. So hearing about your sons from, first of all, your demeanor, the way you speak, and then. And these three sons, Alistair at Amherst <laughs> and Duncan and William at Georgetown Day. And if anybody knows about day schools, I went to Country Day, Rumson Country Day in New Jersey. Um, there's a certain air like to that college and those mm-hmm. schools as well. People will look at that in totality and think they know who you are based mm-hmm. on that. Um, but your upbringing is very different than the experience that your children are having right now. Is that safe to say?
1: Very safe. Okay,
0: so take me back to Denver at the in those teenage years where did you grow up and what was your home life like
1: sure before i get to that Mm -hmm. i would be remiss if i didn't say that a lot of what those boys have accomplished is because of their mom really yeah Mm -hmm. their mom she's double harvard woman Mm -hmm. west indian woman african-american woman um or caribbean american woman incredibly smart, incredibly strong, and much of what they've accomplished is, is definitely a credit to her. Mm-hmm. So while we don't have the best relationship um, um, at times, I think that we have always been committed to what's best for the children. Mm-hmm. And like typical West Indians, um, we have always focused on what is the best for their education. Yeah, And um, we have poured into them everything that they've needed. Um, and, and she in particular, um, I mean, she read the classics to them when mm-hmm. they were, you know, you know, children and in bed with her um, at, at nights while I was working. So a lot of the formation stuff and the day-to-day management stuff now of their lives, um, you know, is is due to what she brings to the table. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, all respect. Uh,
0: hats go, off to go, mom. Go,
1: hats off to I won't use her name on mm-hmm. this podcast, but, hi, but but hats off to her. Um, my origin story, you know, listen, I I I laugh at it because because my mom so I'm Jamaican mm-hmm. um <laughs> Rude boys. Yes. (laughs) Um, so my mom, um, you know, and dad, uh, are literally like from the country in Mm -hmm. Jamaica and, um, you know, they weren't even married when, when I was conceived. I think I attended my parents' wedding. Um, and so my mom tells a story of feeling like she had to go to the toilet, um, Mm -hmm. um, in the middle of the night and the toilet is not down the hall. It's an outhouse. Right. My mom goes to the outhouse and there I am. The water breaks <laughs> and I almost come out. Um, and so she managed to go back and the midwife comes. But though that's my that's my starting point. And um, you know, uh grew up in Jamaica, my dad was a constable and a farmer, owned acres of land. Um it, for me it was just it was just the that was life. Yeah. Um but like all immigrants, you know, you want to go to foreign, you want to come to America, England or Canada. Mm -hmm. You want a better life. And so, you know, my dad uh, left uh, when I was like five. And he came to America. Mm-hmm. And my, my elder brother, my mom was his second wife, so my elder brother was already here. He sponsored him. So it's chain migration, I guess, mm-hmm. is what you'd call it today. And um, then uh, my, my my parents sent me to live with my great-grandmother, uh, Catherine, who uh, was a fantastic woman, very smart, um, very proper. And she made us speak the Queen's English. She prepared us to come to this country. Mm-hmm. Um and and uh, yeah, it was, it was kind of strange, uh, you know, got on a plane, Pan Am back in 1973. Oh man, Pan Am. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we flew into JFK. And, uh, you know, I came to America. I was seven years old. I still remember it. I was wearing one of those ruffle shirts uh, and brown trousers. And
0: uh, I had you in a stylistics shirt. To, to
1: do you remember that that Seinfeld episode where, jo- yes. where, where he had that, that? That was the kind of shirt that I traveled in. I came to America and uh, it was just a foreign country. It was mm-hmm. strange. But I, you know, I always, I always uh, zero in on certain periods in my life because the time with my great grandmother was really important. Mm -hmm. I mean, she was, she was so disciplined and she was so proud um, that my father entrusted us with her and she did all that she could do. I mean, she was uneducated, you know, small house, but she, she just handled her business. Mm -hmm. Um, And we got to America and, you know, live with my uncle for a little bit. Um, interestingly, I, I I live in the same house today that I moved to when I came from Jamaica.
0: So I'm sure there's a lot that has happened there's in between. A whole story yes,
1: behind that we can get to that. Mm-hmm. But but so you know, my, my uncle had a little house, and then we got an apartment, and the rest is history. So my home life initially was very very humble. Mm-hmm. Like I literally you know started from the bottom. Now we're here kind of mm-hmm. thing. I literally started in the outhouse. Wow. So everything was up for me. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then grew up in East Orange, New Jersey uh, for much of my my time as a as a young man. Uh, my father died when I was 13. Mm. And so that was a that was a challenge. Um, you know, probably the most devastating thing that ever happened to me um, was his death. And uh, I'm kind of free flowing here, but I'll just go with of it. The reason why my father's death was pro- was challenging, uh, in fact, it occurred, the season is coming, it was the late December, um, it was challenging because as a young man, uh, you really need your father. Absolutely. You need your mama, absolutely. But you really need your father because mm-hmm. that that guy gives you the protection that you think that you, that you need. Actually, it's not that you think you need; you actually need it. And so um, I remember he died in 1977 or 1978 in December, and I remember seeing him die. I was in the room when he died. So I had he been sick, or He'd been sick? He had mm-hmm. cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, he died, So he was diagnosed with lung cancer in like June or July, and he was dead by December. Wow! Lost a lung in between. Had you know hospice, long time in the hospital and i remember seeing all this and it was all surreal to me but i remember i remember touching him as he was dying Mm. and because i i wanted to feel what it was like to touch someone as they were dying and so that was an interesting thing but more importantly um as i reflect on it many years later it's i've been walking through this world without any protection Mm. the difference between my children and me is that my children never walk alone Mm -hmm. no matter what happens to them I will get on a plane get in a car get on in a train and we will go to war with whomever we got to go to war with and we will handle it and they know that that gives them a special sense of security that I just never had and I feel even to this day at 54 that I kind of wish that I had somebody to tell me the way to go. Mm-hmm. But I had to figure it out you know, on my own. And, and so that's why I think it, it's, it's been the most um, uh, uh, important thing that's ever happened to me. Um, so the other thing I would say, just to throw this together a little bit, is that for every man that's out there that has a problem with the woman that gave birth to your son or daughter, that is absolutely no excuse. Mm-hmm. That child needs your help sure. and support and protection. And what I realize—this um, is where I get a little emotional about the mm-hmm. whole thing. What I realize from my sons is, you know, if you if you extend a hand and give a kind word to your boy or your daughter. Mm-hmm. It goes so far. Yeah. They just want to make you proud and they just want to do well and they want your blessing. And so, you know, being present, even if you've got no money or resources, being present and just, you know, being at the game or standing up or, or helping with homework, all mm-hmm. that stuff matters more than you would know. For sure. As I say, Alistair and I don't talk very much, but on every big decision, that kid is picking up the phone. Mm-hmm. And that's... Because I was always present and he knows I'm always going to be present no matter what.
0: For sure. And without that guide, you know, of your father and being out in the world, making the transition into young adulthood and beyond, without him, how did that impact how you made decisions?
1: (laughs) Uh, Sometimes without enough reflection. Okay. (laughs) Well, but in fairness, my uncle, um, the man whose home I currently live in, uh, he was always there. Mm-hmm. So my uncle Ernest, you know, was just the guy that, that just was there for me all the time. He really pushed me to be my best. Um, and um, he supported me economically at times. Um, and I don't mean like peeling off big stacks, right? but when you're in college in 1984, <laughs> and the dude sends you a 50, Right, balling. that's like yeah. huge, right? Oh. You know, so um, my uncle always gave oh. me guidance and when I was acting the fool, he told me about it. Mm-hmm. There was a time when I got my ear pierced. <laughs> My uncle is an old, proper West Indian man. Okay. The way I'm dressed today is how he would dress. <laughs> and I came home with a diamond earring, and he was like, What the hell are you doing?
0: But what, how did he really say it though? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I'm pulling Denver out of his comfort zone right now.
1: Well, we're in a politically correct <laughs> environment, so I can't say, I can't say what he said. But uh, let's just say he was a very traditional man, mm-hmm. and you know, having the ears uh, peers on either side was a non-starter for him. Gotcha. Um, in terms of making decisions, um, you know, I became very self-reliant. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm very thoughtful about things. I'm very introspective. Like I can call myself on my BS, right? Yeah. Um, so I'm very int- Perspective, but I also um, just both as a lawyer as a student I like to go about getting information mm-hmm. so I will touch a lot of different places you might not know I'm asking you for information sure but we're gonna have a conversation and uh, and I'm gonna get what I need and then I synthesize all of that information and come down to critical factors that, mm-hmm. uh, that are important to me um, so when I was going to college for example I um, I went to a traditional high school in East Orange, New Jersey. Uh, Shout out to Clifford J. Scott High School. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's no longer in existence, but, um, uh, you know, it's where I went to high school. Um, I knew that I did not want to go to a historically black college. I I have nothing against historically black colleges, Mm -hmm. but I felt at the time that I had been around black people my entire life. Mm -hmm. In in Jamaica, that's, that's a whole different environment, but... Ever since I came to the United States in second grade through high school, I'd gone, I'd been in school with with black people, black Americans typically. Um, and then um, there was only one Caucasian fellow in my entire uh, schooling, mm-hmm. from, from grade school, on, you know, on up. And I... I wanted a different experience. I wanted to see what other people dealt with. I wanted to see how other people in America lived. I wanted to not only deal with Caucasians, but I wanted to deal with Asians and and Jews and, and, and Italians. And because of where I grew up, you know, it was very segregated. So, you know, New Jersey. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in West Orange. I know
0: East Orange, West and
1: South, right. too. Yeah. So, so you, know, you know, in Montclair, mm-hmm. in Glen Ridge. Yeah. So Caldwell. So, you know how the various ethnic groups sort of fit into that. Right. And I just want. So in East Orange, you're kind of confined to Newark. So you're black and Hispanics, and that that can't just be my world. Is how I thought about it.
0: And you had the presence of mind yeah. to think about this at, yeah. as a high school senior. Yeah,
1: I was like, I am not doing that. And I also, I I was an all state football player in New mm-hmm. Jersey, so I felt like I could go anywhere that I wanted to go. Um, and I was like number between number three and number five in my in my graduating class. So I I, I did well and I had mm-hmm. options, but I wanted to try something different. And I particularly wanted to try New England. And, you know, a part of that is just really the West Indian in me. Yeah. Right. So we we look to, I think a lot of West Indians uh, at least used to look to, you know, being as English or as British as you could be, <laughs> note the way I dress, right? And and so the whole New England way of being was interesting. It seemed like what a good upstanding West Indian would want to be a part of. Okay. And I was trying to be a part of that. Real talk though, I wanted to be rich. Okay. I wanted to make money. And it seemed to me that the folks that were making money were folks that didn't look like me. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to figure out the program. And and one way to do that was to go and be educated among them. So to me, it was like a learning experience to figure out how do we do this? What do I need to know? What do I need to do? Who do I need to connect with? Things like that. Mm
0: -hmm. So you ended up at Middlebury. I
1: ended up at Middlebury College.
0: Now, the only thing I know about Middlebury is their language intensive programs, because that was a thing. People would go from Penn to Middlebury for a period of time to immerse themselves in language. Um, But I don't know a lot about their other programs. So was your focus sports and a major there that you felt like would be strong?
1: I had no idea what I was doing.
0: So you just picked it like it's in New England. I picked
1: Middlebury Mm -hmm. College because... One, I went to visit and, uh, you know, it's in the Green Mountains Mm -hmm. of Vermont. It reminded me of Jamaica
0: that <laughs> that's why you
1: picked it and that's one of the reasons mm-hmm. i picked it. the lush green environment um the rolling hills reminded me of jamaica obviously it's a little different because mm-hmm. you know vermont might be a little bit taller and it's colder i went to visit that school in the middle of winter oh, gosh. in january over the king weekend and i walked about you know went to a couple of uh, the the buildings i went to a couple of the parties there visited the coach mm-hmm. and i just felt comfortable initially i just felt like beautiful buildings.
0: Which is surprising to me. Like, a lot of the people that we've had on this show Mm -hmm. come from predominantly Black areas who then go to a PWI say the exact opposite. I felt like a fish out of water. Nobody, I couldn't relate to anyone. They all were affluent. And then there was me. And I didn't really know how to navigate and it took me time to adjust. You felt comfortable from the first
1: visit. Well, I said I felt comfortable when I visited Mm -hmm. to make a decision. (laughs) (laughs) Let's be precise. (laughs) Or to be precise. Mm-hmm. um when i went there you know i i, I just it just felt fine to me mm-hmm. i mean listen i didn't grow up in a household where like race was discussed it mm-hmm. was a problem yeah there was the other side but to me it was like so what yeah that's not going to define me and in fact it, you know this might be a little controversial right here When I was coming up, the people that said the worst things to me were Black people. Like what? Whatever Trump is saying right now, Mm -hmm. that's what Black people used to say to me.
0: Was it because you
1: had come from Jamaica? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You take our jobs, get on your banana boat, go to your crap hole country. You know, a lot of those things were said to me when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And so I always had this thing like, okay, cool. I'm going to go and find an environment that would be accretive to me. If they're gonna say all that bad stuff to me, fine. At least they're gonna teach me how to make some money, and that's my that was my mindset when I was in high school. Um, when I went to Middlebury to visit, um, you know, I, I I really gelled with the people that I met. I gelled with the coach, uh, Mickey Heineken. I gelled with uh, a number of my future teammates, and it just seemed like a, a, a fine place. I love the the ivy colored uh, the ivy covered buildings. I, you know, I knew it was going to be a fantastic, um, educational, uh, mm-hmm. experience. Um, and then, you know, more importantly, I got buy-in from someone just randomly. Mm-hmm. So, um, I was in the um, the college counseling office at school, at, in my high school, and my guidance counselor was trying to get me to join the Marines or something like that. Mm-hmm. It was 1982. And
0: you were in the top five in yeah. your class. Mm-hmm. Right, and
1: her kid was at Morehouse, but I'm supposed to join the Marines. And there was this Caucasian woman who had like a, a back problem. She had like a hunchback. And I don't remember, I don't know her name. I don't remember anything about her except her physical characteristics. I knew she lived in Montclair and she heard this woman talking to me and um, she pulled me to the side one day, pulled my coat and said, if Middlebury wants you and and you have a shot, you should go visit Mm -hmm. and you can get in, you should go. And she gave me just a little bit of intelligence. And, um, you know, there's something about her, like the seriousness of, of what she said and how she pierced me with her eyes. I'm like, you need to go check that out. You know, you don't belong in the Marines now, mm-hmm. frankly. I like the Marines. Mm-hmm. I, uh, military service is something that I that I gravitated toward. Um, but when she told me that, I went and checked it out. And it was, it was pretty righteous. So a couple of things happened. I... I can be kind of very boss driven, like Mm -hmm. boss dude, right? And so um, I got to Middlebury, they walk you around, they show you all the good stuff. You know, they pair you with some accommodating folks, Mm -hmm. put their best foot forward. But for me, it was always about how do we pay for this? So I basically went to financial aid and cut a deal right there.
0: On your visit? Yeah. How?
1: So I knew how much money my mom made and I knew that her deal was, son, you're just gonna have to make your way yourself. Mm-hmm. And I knew that early on, right? And so when I went to Middlebury, I wanted to figure out how am I gonna pay? I think back then it was like 10, 12 mm-hmm. a year, maybe 14,000. That was more than half what my mom made, yeah. um, you know, working in a hospital. And, and I was like, I was like, if you accept me, if you admit me and give me the right package, we'll do this deal right now. <laughs>
0: So you're talking like you're coming to negotiate a, a, a job, like, you know, a, a career opportunity.
1: Yeah, if you, I don't remember the guy's name, but he was head of financial aid. And I said, here's what my mom makes. I don't know how I afford this. He gave me an answer that says, well, we have, you know, program grants and, and, and loans and so forth, and, you know, we can work with that. And I said, cool. And I said, well, what's the number? And he gave me some parameters. And I said, good, done. And then all I had to do was apply. And I knew if I applied and did a decent essay mm-hmm. and all that stuff, I was going to get in. I also did the same with my coach, Mickey Heineken. You know, they always wanted to figure out whether the black kid is going to come. Yeah. Because so many black kids kind of, they kind of like it, but they have the experience of a lot of folks not finishing. Mm-hmm. Right. So I looked Mickey in the eye and I'm like, you know, if you get me in, done. We're going to make this happen. And I thought that I was a bad dude because I was all state New Jersey. I played with Craig Hayward, Ironhead. And I was on the team, um, uh, the North South football game. So I thought I was like a real dude. I was going to show up and just ball straight out. Like they, they didn't know who they were going to deal with Mm -hmm. when I got on campus. And so everyone did what they were supposed to do. And I was like, done. And that's how I got there. But your real question is like, I think your real question is gonna be, or your next question would be, well, what was it like when you were yeah, really there? For sure. So, yo, it was not what I thought it was when mm. I applied, right? So I recently spoke uh to the Middlebury College football team as as our guest speaker at the end of the year. And I, I, I I'll just summarize it like this. I divided Middlebury into three categories. There's the academic piece, the social piece. Um, and the athletic piece. Mm-hmm. And all three phases have to work really well for you to have a good experience. Otherwise, it's challenging. Um, and so when I got there, what I realized is that my number three or number five in my class in East Orange, high school, in, in the East Orange school system, doesn't really rank when you have kids that go to Andover, Georgetown Day right. School, you know, Exeter, you know, all those mm-hmm. schools. They're just trained. My kids today are so much better than I was back then. Yeah. They write an essay like done um they just do really well i just didn't have that training Mm -hmm. and so i realized it was going to be hard and i and i struggled my first year um i didn't think i was gonna make it but i believe when when i got there i was like we're gonna burn the boats as they say Mm -hmm. burn the boats mean you know you travel to a place to conquer it um and you know you can't go home yeah so one of the things about going to, one of the things about rejecting mm-hmm. a historically black college is you're making a statement that, you know, you're you're shunning familiarity mm-hmm. and a great experience. Because historically black colleges are fantastic schools. For sure. Fantastic schools, right? If you go to a predominantly white school and you flunk out and you go home, you can never live that down. Mm-hmm ever. I am not that dude who's going to go back home with my tail between my legs trying to figure out what school am I going to go to? Mm-hmm. You know, because it would be like, there goes the all-state Denver Edwards who could have gone to Morehouse, but he was so snooty. You know, he ends up in Middlebury and he fails out. Can't do it. So I burned the boats. Um, and I and I struggled first year and it was hard, uh, but I got through. And I remember when I got my final grades, uh, I literally Fell to my knees in the middle of the field. There's this field called Battelle Field. I fell to my knees and I was like, "Thank God I survived." Mm-hmm. But all I had to do was survive because the next thing is, how do you win? Right. So uh, figured out the academic piece, wrote you know uh, honors thesis, that kind of stuff. Graduated in good standing, you know, pretty good grades. Figured it out. But I gave a lot of credit to certain professors. Mm-hmm who actually like taught me, you know, and they inspired me and gave me um, the sense that I belonged and that I wasn't just some guy that got, you know, got in by the skin of my teeth. They were like, Mm -hmm. you belong here. Now, you know, get your ass in gear and do this. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was great. And I I give a big shout out to Professor John Spencer, who was the guy that basically lit the fire and just said, you need to go and handle your business. Um, And he was your typical, you know, angular white Ford Foundation type Mm -hmm. of guy. Um, So I give him a lot of credit. Socially, it was just challenging. Like, again, the only person I knew was, you know, was Charles. You know, the kid who lived down the street from me. He was the only white person I'd ever interacted with on a regular basis. And so, you know, what do you do when, you know, you can't go to the barber?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I can't imagine many black barbers in Vermont. None. Any, yeah. None.
1: Uh, What do you do... When the way you dress is different from, you know, everyone else. Um, What do you do when, you know, everyone has money and you don't? Um, What do you do when you go to a party and, like, they behave in a way that's foreign to you? Like they're slamming beers against their head (laughs) or doing these these shotguns or whatever you know what do you do when you can't get a date Mm -hmm. that's a problem when you're in vermont and it's the cuffing season man (laughs) (laughs) right it's crazy so those are some challenges (laughs) um but again what i do well one of my superpowers i would say is i learn and i adapt Mm -hmm. and so you know, by the time of the second year, you know, I always had I always had a little friend who was my girl. Um, you know, we were strictly friends, but then we became, you know, a couple. Mm-hmm. And that was just that was just cool. It made life easier. Like she was a great um great friend. And she she loved football and she knew how the game worked. And she would critique me on my football skills mm-hmm. even before we started going out. Um, and so uh, she was just fantastic. We're still friends to this day.
0: Now I'm going to ask this question because I know my listeners and they're going to want to know, was she black? Uh,
1: no, she was uh, she was a Caucasian woman, uh, redhead uh, <laughs> from Darien, uh, Connecticut, Darian, Connecticut. Darian, Connecticut. Um, and, you know, I think she was, her, her mother was Norwegian and her father was Irish.
0: Okay. So, so I want to go back to a couple of things because there were, there are people who are going to hear this and okay. He, uh, chose very consciously a PWI. He has said, people are going to zero in on that soundbite that you said the worst things you ever heard were from black people. Yeah. You worked to figure out how to make it work at Middlebury and in the process started dating a white woman. Yeah. They're gonna hear all of that in succession and say, this dude is just trying to assimilate like and, and pandering to white people, right? I'm just telling you, I, I know there's a there's a, a subset of the black community who will hear that and that is the summation, like that they, that's what they will come to, right? The conclusion. Sure. So I'm gonna frame it a different way though. How? Have you managed? How did you manage through that process to stand in your position as a Black man and be unapologetically that despite being in that environment and despite the choices that you've made? Because I'm sure, having knowing DeMarcus, you wouldn't have been brought on the show if you were not standing in that. Um, confidently. So right. despite those choices, um, help the audience understand, you know, who you really are as the, the, the person who immigrated to the United States, right. made these choices for economic reasons or, or what have you, um, and made it work because you said, yeah, I'm not going back home. Um, how do you stand in your blackness? in spite of some of the decisions you might have made that others may may see as um, a desperate need to assimilate?
1: Well, I mean, I wasn't trying to be white mm-hmm. or be like white people, except for their economic status. Yeah. Um, for me, it was the choices that were in front of me. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted a different experience from what I had been raised around. Mm-hmm. Right. And that meant going to the best school. Let me frame it this way. Yeah. You know, I think if there's anyone that wants to challenge me on the issue, mm-hmm. what I would as a grown man today, what I would challenge is, um, you know, why did I think that going to a predominantly white school was perhaps better than going to a historically black college? Mm-hmm. I think that's really the question. Um, and I think there is, you know, I think a lot of folks look at historically, some folks look at historically black colleges with a, with a, with a jaded view, like, sure. they're, like they're not as good. They are as good. And I know lots of people who have gone to those schools who rejected Ivy League schools to go to, mm-hmm. to those schools. Um, I made the, the best decision that was available to me at the time, Middlebury came, Yale, came mm-hmm. and then there were a whole bunch of other schools. Middlebury gave me the best economic package. So while I sought out a school like Middlebury, I was looking for the best economic yeah. package and the best educational experience mm-hmm. full stop. How do I deal with you know with with being black at Middlebury? I mean, I think that if anyone were to go to any of my classmates at Middlebury, both black and white, They would never say that Denver Edwards was cooning Mm -hmm. anywhere, right? Um, They would say that the dude was real. You know, no one ever stepped to him and did some crazy stuff that he overlooked. Yeah. I participated in the black clubs that were at school. We had the black student union. Mm -hmm. There was apartheid um, uh, demonstrations. I did all that Mm -hmm. while I was at school. I think that... This really comes down to yeah, but you were dating a white woman. You think a lot of it. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of it will come down because because I know a lot of dudes that were in that position. Yeah, and I've seen dudes that were that are in were in that position, and I know what I've said about them.
0: <laughs> I'm not gonna ask you, uh...
1: <laughs> right? I appreciate you not asking. If
0: if you but... were not a partner at a law firm, I would ask, but I'm right. not gonna ask.
1: But... Right, but 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 so but so when I was, I'll just be real with you. Mm-hmm. I dated that woman because she was very nice to me, mm-hmm. right? Um, but there were only seven black people in my in my in my class.
0: Not surprising.
1: At Middlebury at the time, um, there were very few black women. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to go a whole four years. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I'm just not going to do it, right? Secondly, there were black women at school that I stepped to. Mm-hmm. And some said, well, I don't date nappy-headed black men. Wow. So I adapt. I deal with the facts on the ground and what's in front of me. Mm -hmm. And so when I look back on my Middlebury days, I'm not mad at anything. Mm -hmm. I had great friends. I had a relationship that lasted for a little bit. I'm currently on the board of the school. Um, You know, I'm a trustee of the school. I think that I have stood tall with yeah. respect to being black on campus and part of the reason why I am a trustee is because I call it like I see it. Mm-hmm. I am not someone who who reflexively sees an issue and says and, and you can predict what my what, mm-hmm. what my analysis is going to be. Let's just say that. Um, you know, and I don't know whether it's because I'm West Indian or otherwise, but I have I have experienced negative attitudes from a cross section of folks. And so when things happen, I'm just not gonna be like, oh, he's right, she's right. I wanna know what the facts are, we'll make a decision. And that's how I um, that's how I operate. And that's mm-hmm. how I have taught my kids to operate.
0: Mm-hmm. And th- and I ask these questions because one of the the goals of this show is True. to show that we are not a monolith. And I'm asking questions True. as someone who made a conscious decision to go to a PWI. Like I had said, hands down, I'm going Ivy. If I get in, that's it. I didn't apply to one HBCU. Right. Um, and that was a choice that I made and and stand behind. Right. And and I had um, I loved Penn. It was great. I may not have had the largest social network because I just couldn't relate on a lot of levels to a lot of my classmates from a socioeconomic standpoint and the like. Um, but I built a community off campus. The beauty of like going to a PWI in a metropolitan area because I had friends who were at Temple and everywhere else. Right. Um, so I, I asked the question knowing why and people have challenged me as well. Um, so so but I, I, you know, I wanted to make sure that you had a chance. To yeah. explain, um, so that it's not oversimplified, and I think sometimes people make it about an either-or, like either you're super militant, super woke, as they say, or you are, are pandering to a, a white majority. And, and I think there are many of us who are a lot more complex than that. Um, it's, it's more yeah. complex than mm-hmm. that.
1: Like I don't even know what the word woke means. Yeah, like, I just, I, I just don't get it. I wish
0: that. it's a word that people would stop using, quite frankly. But,
1: yeah. yeah, listen. Mm-hmm. I am very conscious mm-hmm. that I'm a black man in America. Very conscious. I'm also very conscious that I'm a Caribbean man mm-hmm. in America. I, just to be really deep about it for a little bit, I actually feel like a man without a country sometimes. Really? Yeah. Because. Um, when you're a Caribbean American right you've I left when I was seven years old mm-hmm. so my connection to my island my homeland I don't really feel it as strong sure. so when I'm talking to some some fellow Jamaicans and they're talking about going to Trelawney and all this stuff and I'm like I wouldn't know how to get there mm-hmm. you know if I were on the island um, because I left so so young and then I get to America and you know I have a very diverse, group of relationships, a diverse community, Um, I don't necessarily feel like I fit into, you know, all of the African-American community um, here in America because there's something different about me. I see the world a little differently. Mm -hmm. And certainly with the the majority community, you know, I definitely don't. (laughs) (laughs) I definitely don't feel as though, you know, they're always willing to embrace me Mm -hmm. as one of their own. But at the end of the day, you know, you have to navigate those circumstances. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I am militant, depending on, but it depends on the issue. Sure. You know, and then sometimes, you know, it's much more nuanced. And frankly, sometimes there's business involved. Mm-hmm. And to get where you need to get to, you know, you just can't be, you know, walking the streets. I'm going to say it, no justice, no peace. Mm-hmm. But, and that's not a disrespect to Reverend Al because if something jumped off with me and my family,
0: somebody get Reverend Al on the
1: phone. <laughs> I might have to get Reverend Al on the phone. But it's but I'm, my point is that it's very nuanced. It's mm-hmm. not black and white. You know, there's a zone where you have to operate. And I think uh, black people of a certain uh, bearing, you know, where you're dealing with all types of constituents, you have to be mindful mm-hmm. of where you are, and it's not compromising. Um, to, to not be out front and, you know, on the picket line. But there are ways that you can do things. Sometimes you, you're the one that goes back channel to talk to the people that are making decisions. That that policy that you're putting out, it's not good for us and here's right. why. Sometimes you're the one that's funding stuff. Exactly. You know, there are a lot of ways that you can contribute. So when folks, you know, look at it and say, oh, you know, certain black folks are sellout. I'm like, you don't know that man or that woman's life.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And you certainly don't know what they're doing behind the scenes and I just leave it at that. Mm-hmm. Frankly, I just don't care.
0: Absolutely. I, I remember I had a classmate from Penn who had gone the very traditional corporate route and rejected it, went to Africa for a period of time, you know, came back and was really, you know, boots on the ground. And he had we were having a conversation, we like met for dinner or something and he criticized me for being in the corporate system. And he's going on and on and on and and I said, "But who gave you the money?" to lay your head on a pillow at a hotel for a night when you had run out because you had come back and you were all about sticking to your beliefs and you were not going at the corporate job. And I said to him, fight on the front lines. We need that. But there may come a day where you need me to write a check to help you continue to fight on the front lines. And he was like, you know, I never thought about it that way. And I think for that, that historically as a people, that has been the case. There have always been those in entertainment or in other spaces who were funding the movement. They may not have been out there, but they were funding it. And I think both components are absolutely necessary.
1: I think you need strategists. Mm -hmm. I think you need just supporters. I think you need people that are out on the front line throwing, you know, throwing punches sometimes. Yeah. I think you need all different levels of folks, but Mm -hmm. you got to go to where your best use is. Absolutely. And you know, yeah, there was a time when I could throw a couple of punches, but right now my best use is to think about stuff and Mm -hmm. try to implement them and try to influence policy.
0: For sure. So, That's a good segue into your career. So you finish up at Middlebury. Mm -hmm. How did you make the decision to become a lawyer?
1: Well, I always knew I wanted to be a lawyer. Mm -hmm. Uh, I wanted to be a lawyer because when I watched TV when I was a kid, You could either be a doctor or a lawyer, and that was a respectable profession or Mm -hmm. a dentist or an accountant, some sort of services profession. And I wanted to be a dude that wore a suit to work every day if I chose to and use my brain to get things done. Mm -hmm. And it also presumably paid well. Mm -hmm. So there's a common theme throughout this thing that I wanted to have a comfortable life.
0: You were getting to the money, yes.
1: Well, (laughs) because I started in an outhouse, Mm -hmm. so I wanted to make sure that i never never ended up in an outhouse. And so that fuel will drive me. And part of the way you don't do that is you earn a couple of bucks and you sock it away and you share the wealth. Mm -hmm. So, um, but what really got me over the hump Um, Because a lot of my friends were actually going to Wall Street. They were econ majors. They were going to do the usual, you know, analyst Mm -hmm. programs. So one day um, when I was a sophomore in high school, sorry, a sophomore in college, I worked at a restaurant in South Orange. It was a very hot day. It was over the July 4th weekend. And I was, um, I was taking a bus. So that bus crossed town from South Orange to Bloomfield, mm-hmm. New Jersey. Basically, that could take like 45 minutes to an hour. It was hot, and I got off the the bus, and I was walking down this this nice street, and uh, I was looking a little angry. It was hot. I was making three thirty-five an hour, um, not fifteen, but three thirty-five mm-hmm. an hour, and. You know, it was just a hard day. And police rolled up on me. And uh, black cop, white cop. And they're like, where are you going? So I sometimes have a non-cooperative attitude with law enforcement. Mm-hmm. I believe that I have a first, uh, Fourth Amendment right to not be bothered if I'm not doing anything. And so I ignored the officer because he doesn't need to know where I'm going. I'm walking down the street. I'm not doing anything. There's no one else around. Mm -hmm. You need to leave, let me be. And so the the black cop, this is a black cop. He jumps out of the car and he he said, you know, I said, where are you going in a very authoritative tone? I said, I'm going home. And I kept walking and he told me to stop, but I kept walking. I just didn't feel like the dude had a reason to stop me and he wanted to show out. And I just didn't believe in that level of disrespect. So um, he eventually caught up to me and put me on the ground. And uh, I don't think he put handcuffs on me, but he definitely put his knee in my back. Mm -hmm. And he definitely, you know, sort of locked me up with my shoulders and so forth. And, you know, he used a couple of pejoratives. And uh, I was like... I'm at some elite school. I'm just minding my business. And this dude can do this to me? Mm -hmm. And I was like, never again. I was never, ever, ever going to be in a situation where I didn't feel like I had the ability to protect my rights. And sitting on, sitting on that curb, you know, after he sat me up, I was, I was just, I was just looking at him and you know, it was bad because the Caucasian officer was, he looked kind of embarrassed. Mm-hmm. He was like, <laughs> like, what's going on? More importantly, the the reason why I really got so messed up about it is that my third grade teacher, her house was on that corner mm-hmm. and she came out of her house and she was standing there. I don't know if she recognized me, but I saw the look of disappointment on that black woman's face this elderly black woman. And I just felt, so humiliated. Mm -hmm. And I was like, never again. And that was a deciding factor. So at that point, I was like, I'm going to go and be a civil rights lawyer um, because that's never going to happen to me again. And that's when I made the decision to go to law school.
0: So you made the decision to go to law school with dreams and aspirations of being a civil rights lawyer. Right. But that's not what you do.
1: (laughs) So once I got to law school, that changed because, um, I, I gravitated. So I'm very rule-based. I love mm-hmm. reading statutes and, and parsing language and seeing the ins and outs. Um, and and so I took a lot of courses that were more commercial. Mm-hmm. And I found that I like those courses. Remember, I said it four or five times now, I was always interested in how can I be economically yes. successful. And I realized that, you know, civil rights is fantastic, but it might not give me the lifestyle that I wanted. And so... Um, I didn't really like the coursework. More importantly, I, just, I mean, at some point, reading cases about Black folks getting beat down just—it becomes hard to read, mm-hmm. particularly when you're in a law school class where you're probably one of two or three people. And I just—I just—it just didn't resonate with me. So even though I, I started out saying I wanted to do that, I, I just—it it didn't resonate, mm-hmm. and so I decided to take more commercial. Uh, uh, courses
0: so those are like unfamiliar with the legal profession um, when you start talking about the the commercial side of things Mm -hmm. people generally have a really traditional path in that they go work a summer associateship hopefully they're successful there get this is pre-recession you know they pre crash for week Um, hopefully you know they have a successful summer they get an offer you roll into 3L year Coasting, because you know that this is where I'm going to go back. Um, you start your profession at, at a career. You, I mean, you start, I'm sorry, start your profession, um, your career at a law firm where you summered. You start working there. You're going to be on a couple of different tracks, either the partner track, either, you know, an of counsel situation or at that point going in house and commanding a certain dollar amount. Voila. Um, that's a lot of commercial attorneys have that story. But then there is a subset, myself included, whose path is not as straightforward and not necessarily um, a traditional career trajectory. You've got a few bar exams under your belt <laughs> and you've moved around a bit. Right. I know that is a long, detailed story, but give us a summary of like how that happened. Sure. Mm-hmm.
1: So graduated from law school in 1994 from Boston University. Uh, big up to BU. Um, I didn't like law school mm-hmm. like most people. I, I just <laughs> I just I, <laughs> mean, was I the did worst. OK, but I, I I, wasn't a super student mm-hmm. and, and I graduated um, during one of the worst recessions. Mm -hmm. So 1994, talk about 2008, that was bad. 2008 Mm -hmm. is definitely the Titanic. But before that, 1994, nobody was getting jobs. Mm -hmm. And so if you weren't top of your class and I wasn't top of my class, it was hard to, to, get work. Mm-hmm. So I I took a class in law school um, called Advanced Corporate Transactions. Um, there was an adjunct professor who was at and Doerr or some Boston firm. And what he did was his teaching style was very, really interesting. Everyone represented a particular entity okay. in a transaction. So it was probably a, like a private equity type. Well, there was a private equity person. There's a banker. There's the company. There's, you know, the employees. There's just stuff going on in the deal. And he mentioned that, you know, the regulatory piece is incredibly important. I like rules, I like statutes. And so he said that one of the things that you could do as a young lawyer to really increase your chances of being successful is to go work in public service, Mm -hmm. right? To to really um, get the responsibility early on. And so I decided to go work for the Treasury Department, uh, a bureau called the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency. And I did that for about uh, three or four years. Mm -hmm. And then I went to the SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission. And I I did that because I wanted to really hone my skills as a a regulatory lawyer. Um, And I wanted responsibility early on. I was in a to get to stuff, mm-hmm. right? Um but I hadn't really thought it out. So, I mean, I'll go on and tell you about the other jobs, mm-hmm. but but my my teachable moment for folks, uh particularly younger folks right here is, you know, there is that track that that was described, uh, summer associate, mm-hmm. job, you know, and then the various options. You really should start thinking about what you want to do mm-hmm. early on. So when you enter law school, you really from day one ought to be thinking about, do I want to be in a firm? Do I want to be somewhere else? Do I want to be partner? How do I want my legal career to go? You can't dictate what happens, um, but you can certainly work and position yourself right. to be in the right way. So I wanted to be a great uh, regulatory lawyer and I think I wanted to do it in the financial services space. Back then, financial services was huge, mm-hmm. uh, much like the internet is now and technology. Yeah, Finance was huge, uh, particularly banking and the merger between investment banking and commercial banking was, was you know the rage back then. And so I, I, I chose those jobs. Um, but then I had kids and I had to go back, I mean, get out and go earn. And so I went into firms uh, from there. Um, I wanted to use my regulatory knowledge and the skills that I have learned investigating individuals and companies in a, in a law firm setting. So mm-hmm. I actually went and became a bankruptcy lawyer. And the reason why I like bankruptcy was because it's a lot of skill sets in one, sure. right? And so I did that. Um, the rest of it, you know, it's, it's, it's a function of, uh, it's a function of being opportunistic mm-hmm. and necessity. Um, opportunistic like bankruptcy was an opportunistic thing my friend Keith Wolford worked at uh, Kelly Dry and we and we linked up and and worked together um I went to Goldman Sachs for two years that was opportunistic because mm-hmm. it's Goldman Sachs. And then, um, you know, I went, moved out West Coast, worked for Bingham, but then, you know, Bingham folded and I yeah. was on the street. And then I worked for Toyota uh, as in-house counsel, mm-hmm. deal, uh, leveraging my bankruptcy and regulatory skills to to deal with that engagement. My point is that you never know what life will send you what mm-hmm. what what things will happen to you but i never had a real focus on what it is that i wanted to, like it wasn't i, I was going to be a law firm partner yeah. i didn't think about it that way when i was coming out and and so i would suggest that anyone you know who's who's con who young person think about the end goal and it might change but mm-hmm. think about it um, i got a bunch of bars under my belt because well the first three are kind of easy mm-hmm. uh new york because i always wanted to be in new york because that if you were any kind of a lawyer back in the 80s or 90s you had you got to just be in new york mm-hmm. right and then um if you're in new york you can wave into dc so i got dc just by showing up mm-hmm. and then i got uh ba- massachusetts because you could take two bars uh, on success successive days so i did think about that mm-hmm. um california you know california was because i was moving out to the west coast because uh, Um, My children's mom, um, um, you know, got a great job and I wanted her to excel. And so I made the choice to leave my job at Goldman Sachs Mm -hmm. so that she could uh, actualize, as they say, and take a great job in California. Didn't work out for us, but Mm -hmm. that's what I wanted to do. So I took the California bar. Um, Interestingly, I failed the California bar the Mm -hmm. first time. Um, I was working, raising a family and something else was going on.
0: And the California California bar is
1: is three days. And I don't think I put in enough time mm-hmm. to do well on it. And I failed. And I failed at the worst time because another recession came around.
0: And how did that affect your job?
1: Um, I lost my job. In fact, the mm-hmm. firm ultimately folded. Mm-hmm. Three firms folded around that time. So, I, I, you know, the, the job disappeared. Mm-hmm. And then there was, a, there was a, like a six to nine month period where I was unemployed.
0: Wow. Six to nine months for a guy who has made decisions... For security, yes. Taking a very traditional career, you know, just choice profession, what have you, unemployed for six to
1: nine months. Yeah. So the the thing is that if you're if you're not licensed in California, you can't just practice law. Mm-hmm. It's just one of those states where it's not like oh, you're going to wait until you, unless you get a job with another firm and they're sponsoring you. Right. You can't work as a solo. So if you wanted to be entrepreneurial, you really couldn't do it. And I was that was at a time when people were shedding jobs Mm -hmm. so you know I was stuck I gotta say though that that was a very difficult time so I got divorced during that period Mm -hmm. Um, and you know it's it it was just the worst experience to not have a job to lose your family and all that stuff Um, it made me who I am today though Um, so I had gotten fat a good life had made me fat Mm um, that sense of intensity that I had when I was coming through, I just didn't have it as much, um, you know, bad things happened. And I remember when I was like laying in bed one day and, you know, I know the marriage was going to be over Mm -hmm. soon, no job, running out of cash, uh, contemplating what was next. And, um, I saw a P90X commercial. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of a digression, but it's important. So, when I was coming up, I always felt like I was completely the best athlete and I would never be beaten. I would rather die and go out on my shield than quit. And as I laid in bed eating whatever the hell I was eating that morning, I looked at myself and I was like, this is what you've come to?
0: So what, at, at your heaviest, what was your weight?
1: I was 235 pounds.
0: 235, right. and for context, how tall are you? 5'8",
1: mm-hmm. on a good day. So that's that's a chunky dude right there. <laughs> Right? I mean my sons have a photo of me like my my belly is a little bit bigger my butt is big it was it was just it was just sick man uh, my face was puffy i had no muscle tone anymore mm-hmm. and i was always into my physique when i was coming through and 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 i was i was now that guy mm-hmm. frankly i just looked like a sour sap loser mm-hmm. And I saw that commercial and I just decided never again. And I ordered, you know, with whatever dollars I had left, I ordered the package and I started working out and, uh, I lost, I lost all the weight. I got down to like 183 pounds Mm -hmm. and I was like lean and chiseled. Um, And so what I did was I tapped into that, that drive that I got when I was a kid. Also a teachable moment, like figure out what that thing is that motivates you. There is something in each of us that you have from when you were young, tap that thing occasionally and it will drive you forward. Um, So tapped it and then, that was the beginning of my my recovery, because mm-hmm. I, I think I went through a period of depression sure. uh, with the marriage, the kids, and so forth. Um, But there were some good things that happened during that time. Um, And this is not really the professional side, but this is more the personal human side. So when I was going through my thing, um, I got closer to my kids. Mm -hmm. What I realized is that when I was working all those years, um, I'd get home late and maybe I'd read a bedtime story to them, maybe. Um, But a lot of times I only saw them on the weekends. Then I had to deal with errands and stuff. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't really very present. My kids didn't really know me very well. And I know a lot of uh, parents (laughs) We'll be right back. the cat sat on the Go through that now. You want to make this money, and it's great, but there is a trade off that mm-hmm. you have to deal with. Um, And I think that that year, even though it was my lowest point, I cooked some great meals mm-hmm. for my kids. I went to every school event. They were out in California, so they were new to that whole thing. Yeah. I I I was like Overwatch. Like I was at school. I was on the I was a playground monitor sometimes. I mean, I did everything, mm-hmm. and I really, I mean, I knew I wouldn't stay and do it because that's just not the role that I was going to be in. But there was that period of time when I was like, Mr. Dad. Mm -hmm. And it felt really good. And my kids still remember to this day, like the stuff that I used to do with them. And even my ex-wife will say, oh, those meals (laughs) were off the hook. So anyway.
0: So how did you, once you got in shape, how yeah. did you pivot professionally?
1: Yeah. So, um, decided to move. So at that point, relationship ended. Mm-hmm. So a lot of my life is really dictated by where my kids are. Yeah. Um, and so, um, they had moved back to the East coast and I stayed in California for another year cause I was working on that um, matter with Toyota. Mm-hmm. And what I realized then was, um, and it took me a while to get here, but you are where your people are. Mm-hmm. You need a community and you can build a community anywhere you are, but, but my Kids are really important to me because I was never going to be that dad Mm -hmm. that was a summertime dad. I was never going to be that dad where something happened to your kid and everybody's looking around, well, where was his daddy? Like That was never going to be me. And so um, while we still communicated regularly, I thought it was more important for me to be on the East Coast. Mm -hmm. And it also ties into... Why I live where I live right now. Um, my uncle, who was my guy, he looked out for me, and so I believe in loyalty and paying it forward. So my my cousin um, is blind and mentally challenged, mm-hmm. and I was trustee for my or executor for my uncle's estate. And so my uncle passed away right around when our relationship ended, and so someone had to take care of this this man. And you know, I take care of my cousin. Wow. I hire someone to take care of my cousin.
0: Mm-hmm. Definitely. When you said that you were living in the house you grew up and I'm like, there's got be- Story yeah, so as so, to that's,
1: why, so yeah. that's the backstory. That's that's like all this stuff happened. Mm-hmm. And 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 so the other, these are all in my view teachable moments. You know, there's a certain sense of, of humility that you have to have. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, living in Newark, New Jersey, you know, it's like where I started, right? And you know, you have to it's 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 a it's a good neighborhood, but it's yeah. not a great neighborhood. It's changed. Um it's not where I would live today. Mm-hmm. It's not where I'm going to live forever. But you know It's doing what needs to be done when it needs doing. Right. And you just got to step up and handle it.
0: So I want to talk about that specific piece um, within the context of being a partner at a law firm, too, because anybody who knows anything about like being a professional and, and what that means is there's all these status symbols, the car, the home, you host things at your house as a you know, partner or what have you. Did ego ever play in? Like when you decided to move back and you know live in the house that you grew up in, um, but being in these environments where people might be surprised to hear that you hear, live back in your own neighborhood, did you ever have like that ego moment where it's like, I don't know if I wanna do this?
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ego always plays in. I mean, I mean it's a humble house. Yeah. It's not anything special. Um, Ego plays in with your friends, mm-hmm. not just your partners, but with your friends. And they're like, oh, you live in Newark. Why would you live in Newark? I live in Newark because um, it's free. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I live in Newark. Um, and there's a responsibility there, but it's also free. Mm-hmm. So as far as I'm concerned, it's just like stacking money. Yeah. Uh, that Why well, pay five grand a month when I just don't have to? Mm-hmm. Um I believe that folks need to get beyond some of that stuff. Yeah. The things that are important to me, yeah, where I live matters, but you would never look at me on the street and say, oh, this guy's living in some shabby spot. Mm-hmm. I would rather spend my money on bespoke clothing, for example. Mm-hmm. That's my thing. I'd rather travel. I'd rather uh, eat at nice places. I can do anything that any other person is doing. I'm not limited in any way. Yeah. I would also say this. There are a lot of pretenders out there. Oh, absolutely. I'm just going to call it what it is. Mm -hmm. So we can, there are a lot of folks that live in great places, burbs, you know, city apartments. We all know them. Yep. Right. A lot of folks just don't have any money.
0: Overextended.
1: Overextend, yeah. mm-hmm. and you know what? I was one of those people at mm-hmm. some point. I lived in a big old house in in Orange. Um, is a it, it was owned by the Colgate. Actually, mm. it's almost an acre of land. Um, I had a Beamer, Jag, I, like all the trappings, and it was just like, how are you gonna pay that <laughs> tuition? <laughs> right? Yeah. So part of where I am now is I appreciate all of those things. I am confident enough in who I am that I can go and live where anyone else is living. Mm -hmm. But I also told you I was situational and I adapt. There will come a time in the near future where I make another decision. Yeah. But if I don't have to, why should I do something that is not accretive to me?
0: Mm -hmm. Listen, I've said it before, I'll say it again. On this show, I drive an 08 Honda Accord and i've been practicing law for 10 years.
1: <laughs> oh, I got you beat. I got you beat. I drive a 2003 Toyota Sequoia.
0: Oh, you you got me beat by 5 years.
1: And the check engine light is on. And what's the mileage? <laughs> oh, it's got easily over 205,000 <laughs> miles on it. And sometimes I rock that puppy when I drive it to D.C. to see my kids. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I fly, sometimes I take the Acela. I just do whatever, you know, is there. My point is, I am not into the show. Yeah. I feel confident enough in myself that I don't need to be part of the show. Mm -hmm. And anyone who knows me knows that I'm a real dude. And if I need to present, I'll present.
0: Yeah, for sure. So tell me about a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day.
1: Man, I don't have an answer to that question.
0: You, you gotta come up with an answer. Every guest answers the question. And it doesn't have to be anything major, either. You've you you spoken about a lot of the major yeah, things. One. Okay, go for it. I
1: got one. I got one. Most extra, first of all, I think most things that people do are not extraordinary, it's what mm-hmm. you're supposed to do. I believe in doing your duty and you do it well and you don't need to get credit for it. Um, I think the time that I was extraordinary on an ordinary day involves my middle son, mm-hmm. Duncan. And the story is this. So he's at his uh, private school, his independent school. And Duncan is a very uh, social child, very smart, talented, very social. And some dude, one of his boys... Um, use a racial slur mm-hmm. toward Duncan. And Duncan, it was online, and Duncan did something about it. You know, he, he said something to the kid that that perhaps was not as thoughtful as it could have been. I don't even recall what it was. But the kid basically called Duncan a nigger. Mm-hmm. And Duncan was a little shook by it, but he was also not going to take it. So he stepped to the kid. And so a lot of times... You know, folks try to cover that stuff up. Right. But I want to put it in their face. So we had a call with the administration and they were trying to sugarcoat the whole thing. And they suspended Duncan, actually, for a day. And so I was like, wait. Y'all call my son a nigger.
0: It's so typical.
1: And he's out of school because he defended himself. Mm -hmm. And I use the N-word over and over and over again. You might ask, why is that extraordinary? It's extraordinary because my son was just like the proudest he's ever been. Mm -hmm. And it's an ordinary day. It's, 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 It's ordinary because you should always defend your kid. But I believe in speaking truth to power. And so... Folks like to say the N word. They don't even want to say the word. So I say the word. Mm-hmm. I'm like, the word is nigger. And I wanted to make them feel really uncomfortable. I wanted to make them hear the word over and over and over again, mm-hmm. because that's what my kid has to hear every day. And then I use some other pejoratives, because based on the constituents of the people in the room, like, how would you like it if you were called an X or a Y? Mm-hmm. And I use those words over and over and over again. And it was only at that point that I think they appreciated the intensity um, at which, um, I approached it, but also the intensity with which my son came back. So what I consider to be extraordinary about the day is one, people don't do that. Yeah. And two, my son walked away feeling, uh, what I always wanted to feel, which is, um, confident, strong, and proud. And he called me, he was like, I'll take my day, dad. (laughs) But he was like, man, you, you worked them. Mm-hmm. And 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 it was like our little thing, so yeah, it's a simple little thing, but my dude has never been the same since. Mm-hmm. He will never stand for someone calling him that. He will never back down. And you know, he's gonna put it in their face every time he feels disrespected. It's gonna be thoughtful, of course. but every time he feels disrespected, he's gonna he's gonna he's gonna make them realize it. And the reason again, the reason why I think it's extraordinary is because my son carried that lesson. Just that little lesson mm-hmm. will will put him in such great stead on not just racial issues, yeah. but on any issue that he feels strongly about. He feels very strongly about social justice. Mm-hmm. So I might be a sellout, but my kids are <laughs> not. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he feels very strongly about immigrants' rights. Mm-hmm. He feels very strongly about LGBTQ stuff. You know, You know, he's... And he's not gonna stand by and watch something happen because Mm -hmm. he's been trained by me, but also by his mom and also our family. You do not stand idly by. And I think putting in practice what we trained him to do as a child and seeing it happen, I just think it's extraordinary. It's great when your kid actually steps up and does what he's supposed to do.
0: Absolutely. So what does Denver's next act look like? Oh
1: man, that's another tough question. Mm -hmm. So um, I like to divide things into categories. So professionally, um, you know, this is a grind. And so I have about another 15 years in the game. Mm-hmm. I'd like to do something either entrepreneurial or I would like to be the ultimate leader in a particular situation. So Mm -hmm. a general counsel role is something that I'm really interested in. Um, And uh, I'm going to take steps to investigate how to make that happen. Mm -hmm. I want to, I told you at the outset in the background that I'm inherently shy. Yeah. But I'm actually really not. I just want to be a leader. Mm -hmm. And I've not always leaned into the role, but now it's just, I just want to lean in and just be unapologetic. This is who I am. Mm-hmm. Just deal with it. So professionally, that's what I want to do. And as we talked about before, I'm really interested in data privacy and and how that aspect of the world today um, is going to be regulated, and how companies can use that to um, to be an its own asset class and also to be transformative, but also mm-hmm. make money because it's always about earning. Yeah, uh, power, uh, because that leads to freedom. Um, the other part of my life, uh, you know, deals with my family and my children, and I just want to uh, be the best dad that I can be, both uh, while they're in their formative years, but also, you know, I, I, to tie it back to my own father, I I've walked without, I, I walked point my entire life without having that guiding hand, mm-hmm. and I just want to be that dude that that is there for his sons. And my extended family, the young ones coming through, um, that that they can just turn to and 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 say, you know, let's go talk to the old man. Mm -hmm. You know, he he'll always tell it to you straight, and he'll give you some good strategies that you can pursue. And then um, I want to be happy, Mm -hmm. right? So, you know, I'm a single man. Well, I'm involved with a great woman, Mm -hmm. um, and I I think that being Together with someone is really important, mm-hmm. particularly as you get older. No, it's always important, but as you get older, I think it's really good to build a life together. So I would like to be um, in a committed, uh, monogamous relationship mm-hmm. with someone that I cherish um, and just love deeply and where it's not transactional. Sure. And you're just, you give because you want to give. Mm-hmm. And even if you get nothing back, um, you know, you just get, you just keep giving. Right. Because, so I really want to be in love. Um, I know this is, I'm not sure if this is uh, off topic or not.
0: No, everything, there's nothing that's off limits. <laughs> but,
1: I, but I think that's really important to me to, to find a partner, uh, which I think I have, um, and and just be completely committed and love. I think it's I think it's great.
0: Well, this was good. This was good. You were plays well. You were nervous. There are going to be some conversation starters for sure, which is what we want. That that's that's the the kind of interviews you want to have. Um, the ones that that spawn conversation. And trust me, it's going to happen. Really? <laughs> yes, in a good way.
1: Well, you know, listen. If anyone hears something. I'll say it a couple of ways. Mm-hmm. If you're a young person and you want to talk to me about career opportunities and you know, just have a sounding board, I'm always open to um to listening to that and giving whatever guidance and strategies uh that you whatever guidance I can and help you develop strategies that might be um effective in your career path. It's one of the things that I actually like doing most. Um one of the things I didn't talk about while I was, you know, doing the formal questioning is that when I was younger um. I, before, I, before I decided to be a lawyer, mm-hmm. I wanted to be a teacher. Really? I wanted, to, I wanted to coach high school football. I wanted to work like with inner city kids. I wanted to work with um, you know at risk youth. Mm-hmm. Not that I was at risk, but a, a bunch of my teammates in high school were probably at risk. And um, my coach was very influential in creating discipline and teaching me um, and them you know how to be men mm-hmm. and how to play as a team and how to work hard and uh, be committed to something and following through. So that's what I wanted to do. And I changed gears, obviously, but um, there's a part of me that still looks to find opportunities to give that kind of guidance to uh, all people, mm-hmm. uh, but particularly folks that are, um, that grew up in humble or grow up in humble situations because those dudes are just looking for an opportunity. Absolutely. If they just if they can just get someone to give them the information, it's a wrap. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's one. Um, but if anyone has any issues, <laughs> (laughs) With some of the topics that were discussed here, I'm always down to have a conversation and talk about it. Uh, Obviously, you know, uh, it's been a year since I've, uh, you know, I approached those decisions when I was a young man. I, I have a, a different um, a different thought process now. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, on the way over here, I was talking to my son Duncan, and he has his list of schools that mm-hmm. he's applying to. They're all excellent schools, and I asked him, "Well, why aren't you applying to an H- HBCU?" Mm-hmm. And you know, he didn't really have a good answer, uh, much like I didn't have a good yeah. answer. So, yeah, if anyone wants to talk, you know, I'm on LinkedIn. Find me. Happy to chop it up with you. You know. We'll see what happens.
0: And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Well, thank you for giving up some time on this fine weekend to chat with us and tell your story.
1: Well, I'm always happy to chat with you. And your brother, DeMarcus, <laughs> just an amazing dude. He said that you were a fantastic woman, fantastic thank you. sister. And so I've always wanted to meet you. So thank you for- I'm glad uh, we finally met. Yeah, I'm, I'm, it's fantastic. So thank you. For
0: and let me know me. if anybody from your office hears this uh, this interview and what they have to say about it.
1: <laughs> well, the way they tend to say <laughs> cover the internet, they might hear it Mm -hmm. and, you know, they'll deal with whatever they deal with.
0: All right, great. Well, to our listeners, listen, if you want to continue the dialogue with Denver, look him up uh, on LinkedIn. We, again, are always about networking and making sure that the diaspora has a chance to exchange ideas, even if we don't always agree. So um, we'll continue the conversation offline for sure. Remember to like, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We can't do it without you. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care.